Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created History X Silo so historians who work on similar topics, but in different geographical or chronological areas, have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their own expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we have what I think will be a very interesting conversation between a historian who has written about the Soviet external empire in Eastern Europe and a historian working in the same post-war decades, who has written about the social and cultural implications of the French empire in West and Equatorial Africa and the broader project of European integration. In Empire of Friends, Soviet Power and Socialist Internationalism in Cold War Czechoslovakia, Rachel Applebaum explores the mechanisms of soft power that joins Soviet and Czechoslovakian citizens in a common socialist orbit, what Applebaum calls the Friendship Project. The Friendship Project was evident in what Czechoslovakians wore, where they traveled, even who they married. Across six chronologically and thematically layered chapters, Applebaum's historical gaze ranges from film and culture to tourism and student exchanges. Her findings are unsettling to a historiography that has emphasized the hierarchical nature of Soviet relations with the external empire. To be sure, there was subordination and oppression, but also Czechoslovakian humor over clumsy Soviet propaganda efforts, and rather ingenious efforts to turn Soviet propaganda against itself. In the end, Applebaum argues, the Friendship Project succeeded so well that friendship itself became a tool of shame in the aftermath of Prague Spring. Emily Marker explores similar imperial cross-currents in Black France, White Europe, youth, race, and belonging in the post-war era. Focusing on youth culture and educational politics, Marker shows how programs to promote solidarity between young people in France and French colonial Africa collided with simultaneous efforts to make young people in Western Europe feel more European. To put it another way, at the same time that Frenchness was being imagined as a universal identity, and at the same time that the Fourth Republic couched decolonization as a process of integrating colonies more fully into French political structures, a post-war European identity was being defined in terms of a shared racial and religious background, white Christian humanism. A revisionist reading of Marker's work might suggest that the French model of decolonization failed not only because of enduring inequalities between France and its colonies, 
but because of the growing ascendancy of the idea of European racial and religious affinity. Now I will introduce the authors. Rachel Applebaum is Associate Professor of History at Tufts University. Her book, Empire of Friends, won the Radomir Luja Prize for outstanding work in the field of Austrian or Czechoslovakian history. Her new book project on the emergence of Russian as a global language during the Cold War is titled A Global History of Russian from Soviet World Language to Putin's Russian World. Emily Marker is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University Camden. Her recent book, Black France, White Europe, received an honorable mention for the David Pinckney Prize from the Society of French Historians and an honorable mention for the Alf Andrew Hegoy Prize from the French Colonial History Society. Marker is presently on a, at work on a personal family history that explores the relationship between reparations, European identity, and intergenerational transfers of wealth. Uh, so Emily and Rachel, I'm really happy to have you here today, uh, and I'll turn the conversation over to you now. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen and Rachel, for including me in this conversation. I think the idea is fabulous um, to de-silo uh, scholarship and scholarly conversations, and I'm so glad to be participating in this one today, especially because I think that Rachel and my Rachel, we have such... Um, our books are so profoundly in dialogue, even though they are not technically in dialogue with one another, which is really incredible. Um, I think that the first question I wanted to ask you uh, is about the, the, unsurprisingly perhaps, in light of my focus on youth, is the role of youth and generational thinking and, and the idea of maybe generational politics or generation as an analytical category for you in, um, in the way that you're approaching your story. And I ask that because, you know, when I started thinking about a project about an interconnected history of European integration and African decolonization, um, I didn't expect to focus on youth um, as, as pronouncedly as I do. Um, I thought that youth and education might be one sort of plank in a wider sort of cultural sphere of cultural politics. Um, and I was initially thinking about working on a lot of the same things that you ended up looking at film, uh, tourism, pen palling. I was originally thinking about maybe twin cities, you know, city twinning, you know, other kinds of um, sort of transnational projects. Um, and yet in my case, you know, youth um, came to represent something more central and came sort of allowed me to do something more than what I was originally planning. So the way I describe it is that youth, it was like in the field or the youth and education sector where the rubber hit the road for this idea of trying to make a go of it, of decolonization without independence and um, at the same time that France is trying to be a leader in European integration. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about how youth is both like a through line through your story and yet doesn't sort of encompass it all. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, thank you so much to Stephen for inviting me to do this um, and for Emily to for agreeing to join us. And congratulations on your book, Emily, which you know just came out in 2022 um, and is really fantastic. Um, so I think... It's an interesting question that you ask about 
um, youth, because obviously it doesn't play as central a role in my book as it does in yours. Um, but, you know, I think, so I think I'll start with generations because I think that's maybe the easier question for me to answer. Um, the Soviet kind of post-war socialist internationalist project um, in Eastern Europe particularly was very, it was very generationally, it ended up being sort of very generationally focused in the sense that it was, this was a project that was forged during World War II. Um, and I'm hoping that that's something we can maybe touch upon a little later because both of our projects kind of begin during World War II. Um, but it was forged during World War II with the Soviet liberation, if you want to use that word, um, of, well, that's a controversial term, but of um, Eastern Europe from Nazi occupation. And this is the time when, um, you know, in 1944, 1945, as Soviet troops enter Czechoslovakia, you have these mass spontaneous encounters between Czechoslovak civilians um, and Soviet soldiers. Um, and you know, those, some of those encounters are actually violent, um, but many of those encounters are are genuinely, you know, friendly. Um, and then it's that initial post-war generation who experienced the war that has the most kind of actual visceral emotional attachment to this friendship project. And it becomes much harder to kind of translate and pass that project down as the generations evolve. Um, and so particularly, you know, by the time a major turning point in my project is 1968 and the Prague Spring, and then, of course, the Soviets sending their tanks into Czechoslovakia to crush the Prague Spring. Um, and when that happens, um, there is certainly a rhetoric of, you know, Soviet soldiers, your fathers came as liberators, but your sons are occupiers, right? Um, but there's also this sense from Czechoslovak authorities, even those that support relations with the Soviet Union, that this project, it's really hard to maintain it with this new generation that doesn't have personal experience of World War II, doesn't understand that liberation personally, and instead their experiences with Soviet power are now really framed through, um, you know, sending the tanks in to end um, the Prague Spring experiment. Um, youth, I think, you know, in communist societies is always a really important category because, of course, youth are the future of those societies. They're also a little bit of a kind of, you know, blank slate where that's the hope of communist authorities, that they can be shaped through education in a way that their elders who may have memories of other political regimes are sort of more intractable. Um, and so, you know, and I think, again, this is something that we can talk about in more detail in our conversation. Student exchanges become one really important facet of this friendship project, specifically sending the, the part I focus on is sending Czechoslovak youth to the Soviet Union um, in the Stalinist period to really be shaped by that Soviet system and those Soviet values um, and that was something that, that again, that was the generation that had actually experienced World War II. I mean, they were children during World War II or teenagers. Um, but that was, it was the young people of the late 1940s, early 1950s, who were the most enthusiastic in Czechoslovakia about Soviet communism and forging these close relations with the Soviet Union. Um, and then as I detail in the book, you know, their experiences, of course, when they went to the USSR, were very different from what had been kind of promised. 
Um, so I'm wondering now if I can kind of turn the question back to you, Emily. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why you ended up focusing specifically on youth um, and why, you know, why did youth play such a central role in you're really dealing with two transnational projects in your book. Um, you know, one is this attempt of the French to kind of maintain their empire in the post-war period through these kind of closer cultural and social ties, um, you know, with African colonial subjects. Um, and the other is European integration. And in both of those projects, youth play a seminal role. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about your awesome chapter about the the Czech students in, in the USSR, because I think there are some really fascinating parallels with the African student experience in metropolitan France. And then, of course, later at the African student experience in the USSR <laughs> and behind the Iron Curtain, as that becomes a possibility in the later 50s into the 60s and beyond. Um, so, you know, what I'll say is, is that, you know, I think both of our projects, my sense from reading your book without a deep familiarity with the historiography that you're engaging with, is a kind of revisionist project, as Stephen suggested, to, to th take more seriously, you know, the rhetoric of cultural internationalism um, that, um, that has been kind of understood as, I guess, you know, some kind of lip service papering over uh, an outright imperialist hegemonic project. Um, and, and so I think my story is the flip side of that, right? In that, like, there has been this revisionist turn in the historiography of post-war empire in the West um, that has, has been thinking about the post-war moment as an opening, as a real opening where um, it might've been possible to achieve decolonization without independence through a political um, transformation of empire into some kind of viable transcontinental multi-racial multi democracy, right? Um, this is uh, sort of in line with Frederick Cooper's work on the, the prospect of Franco-African federalism after the war or in a, in a different vein, Gary Wilder's work on the thought of Senghor and uh, Aimé Césaire after the war, um, who are trying to imagine some way of, um, you know, as I say, decolonizing without formal independence, without a separation from France. Um, and so, you know, it became clear to me as I got into the archives that, you know, one of the ways in which both French and African leaders are imagining enacting this transformation is through building Franco-African solidarity among young people. That if we can just get the young people to understand each other, get to know one another, develop genuine bonds of solidarity, then, you know, we can make this kind of unprecedented uh, composite polity work, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, when, so that seemed to be looking at young people seemed to be one of, you know, the, the best ways to try and answer a question that the literature that is emphasizing this moment of possibility has not really convincingly answered, which is okay. Well, if it was possible, then why didn't it happen? <laughs> and, you know, I think that, you know, we can take anti-teleological positions too far to the point of coming up with something that, that doesn't necessarily explain um, what actually happened and why. Um, and so my my hypothesis going into the archives was that, you know, the, the confluence of the European project and the Franco-African project might have been part of the answer <laughs> for why these projects didn't work. 
And what I found in looking at the, the material on the youth and education sector was that, yes, that's true. <laughs> and you can see the conflict between European integration as it was enacted in the, the early post-war decades um, with the, the Franco-African integration project precisely in these domains that are hard to see. And if you look at only high politics, right, questions about race, questions about religion, and that, you know, it, in drilling down to this other register, which I think is the register you're really interested in, the register of everyday life, <laughs> we can actually see how it is that racial reconstruction and a rearrangement of ideas about the role of religion in uh, both, you know, French national and European transnational identity came to preclude, you know, the Franco-African integration project. Um, so all of which is to say that, you know, it was the African students' experience of trying to navigate these sort of really tricky path, institutional pathways of obtaining an education and professional training, which was not readily available and despite all the rhetoric really wasn't invested in enough after the war to to actually deliver those services to the vast majority of young Africans, their, ex their lived experience trying to navigate these institutional pathways that have been created for them in order to promote transnational solidarity is what actually turns them against the project because they see they, their experience is one of racial exclusion, is one of religious domination, is one of, of just every day as well as structural racism. Um, and so it is that experiential knowledge <laughs> that leads them to the kind of profound critiques of post-war racism, post-war empire that you see with, you know, other luminaries like Frantz Fanon or, or in the British case, Stuart Hall, that underneath these big intellectual figures, there is this whole generation of young people who came to the same conclusions through, through that experience on the ground. And that's why I found, you know, the experience that you document of the, the Czech students in the Soviet Union gaining experiential knowledge of Stalinism <laughs> and internalizing, you know, uh, these techniques of self-criticism, surveillance, <laughs> um, sort of, you know, self-policing, but also policing one another. Like that is what, that's the education they actually get when they go to the USSR, right? And bring back. Um, and I just found that so fascinating. Um, Especially because it seems it seems like what you're arguing is like, and still those people were the ones that held on to the friendship project the longest, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think um, I mean I guess I want to kind of take a minute to explore the educational focus, um, particularly in your project. And I know that we're not, you know, we're not sort of giving synopses of the book, but since this is, you know, being hosted by Kritika, which is a journal for Russian historians primarily, I think it's just worth saying, you know, people may not know just the profound disparities, you know, that you explore in your book between educational opportunities, um, you know, in France or in Europe versus in Africa at the same time, you know, and you mentioned um, that at the on the eve of World War II, only 1% of Africans in, you know, French um, colonies had any schooling, I believe that was the statistic, which is 
mind blowing, right? Um, I'm totally contrary to the image that we have of like, you know, the French as, as at the forefront of the civilizing mission, right? Um, right. And, and I think, you know, I'm, we're talking a lot about the parallels between our projects, but there is certainly no equivalent, um, you know, that kind of difference between, I mean, for, we'll talk more later, I think about whether the Soviet project in Eastern Europe can even really be classified as an empire, right? For all these reasons. Um, but there's there's no real educational disparities um, between, you know, the two countries. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about um, some of the experiences that the African students that you write about had when they actually went to France. And this, of course, was a tiny minority. Um, and, and they are the sort of elite of the elite in the sense that um, it's so hard for any African students to get especially a post-secondary education in, you know, even going all the way up through the end of the 1950s. Um, so those students who were able to go to France, whether of their own means, you talk about how it wasn't just through official scholarships, they could also just go if they could sort of fund their way. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the experiences that they had in France. And I'm particularly kind of interested, of course, thinking about parallels um, with the Czech students in the Soviet Union or other East Europeans, the anxieties that French officials had particularly about sexual relations um, between African students, most of whom were men, um, and French women. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and how that contrasted with the rhetoric of, I think the term was brassage? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the term brassage that I use is a term that comes from uh, brewing, and it means, you know, intermixing <laughs> um, or uh, sort of, combining and in, in, in a way um, and I and I thought about the way that you use the term rapprochement uh, throughout your book uh, to try and like think about like well okay like what is the what is the change in the dynamic that we're looking for here and you know in the in the franco-african case brassage is essentially meant it, it, it essentially functions as desegregation <laughs> right um, it is intermixing in the context of you know, complete racial seg segregation in the, the youth and education space in French Africa. You know, there are no integrated schools. Um, there, as you mentioned, there are very, very few schools for Africans of all ages to attend. Um, and it is only in the immediate post-war period that, um, you know, the few middle schools and high schools that are, um, are um, in the territories are desegregated and opened up to Afri young Africans for the first time. Um, so they had previously been reserved for the children of, you know, white European functionaries and and the like. Um, so I think that you know that it's interesting that you know I think that nonetheless, despite the fact that it is so arduous for young Africans to obtain a um, primary and then maybe secondary education in Africa and then make this the jump to France, um, you know, I think that there is some expectation that in France, um, they will have more opportunity, they will be welcomed uh, more 
more uh, sincerely. Um, and, and, you know, what they find is profound disappointment, even among, you know, for instance, um, Catholic African students are the most disappointed because they find that they're excluded even from parishes <laughs> and they end up finding their founding their own, um, their own mini parishes where they can, they can be African and French and Catholic altogether, like apart, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the other parallels that I saw a lot is, you know, this idea of self, self-isolation among the, um, the Czech students, Czechoslovak students um, in the Soviet Union, and like this, this real concern that, um, you know, even when they come to France, they are, you know, these African students are living together in special dormitories. There's a lot of debate about whether or not that will be better um, or or counterproductive, right? You know, should we be forcibly spreading out these communities throughout the country? Um, and yet, if we spread them out too much and they're too well integrated, they might pursue relationships with white French women, which is um, considered unacceptable. I mean, what's very interesting is that a lot of the African uh, male students um, also were not interested, also thought that this was not a good idea, <laughs> right? They were not interested in mixed marriages either um, for different reasons. Um, but um, the the sort of recirculation and repurposing of very old colonialist stereotypes and racist tropes about um, the lasciviousness of Black men and their um, sort of uncontrollable desire for white women. I mean, that's a very old colonial trope, that it is modernized and repackaged in this post-war moment. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about our two books is that, you know, I'm one of the most delicate difficult um, sort of conceptual axes that I had to navigate was, you know, the, what is, what it, what changes after the, what really changes after the war, Um, right? Um, That, you know, how transformative, how consequential are all of these post-war developments uh, for, uh, you know, racial reconstruction in post-war France, which is one of the the key focuses of my book. when it seems like there's so many continuities across that post-war rupture. Um, and I think that what I came down, what came down to me is that, you know, it, it is really about like a, a rearrangement <laughs> uh, and producing a new cocktail out of many of the same ingredients. Right. But the meaning is profoundly different um, because of that post-war context. And I think that the sexual anxiety is a part of, is a good example of that. Right. That like these stereotypes just like are, are, will not go away. Um, Even though we see, you know, sort of hostile national stereotypes in the European sphere change quite dramatically, right? Um, And so one one of the things that I argue is that, you know, the sort of erasure of these anxieties about intra-European difference after the war, um, when it becomes really imperative to say that, you know, there, there are no European races right? Like race doesn't exist in Europe. All Europeans are part of the same civilization. It's this pivot from a racial to a civilizational discourse. Um, And yet race remains um, a, you know, remains in the lexicon for thinking about Africa and non-Europeans, right? So one of the arguments that I make is that race itself ends up becoming a new barrier between Europeans and Africans because 
race used to be a category that was widely applied to Europeans. <laughs> and then post, post-Holocaust, post-Nazism, that's no longer tenable. So that actually brings me to a question I had about, um, about the way you're conceptualizing empire and imperialism and also friendship. Um, you know, I was wondering if the empire of friends is, is white <laughs> is the Empire of Friends European, right? There are, you know, these other friendship projects on the horizon, right, for the Soviet Union thinking globe, more globally. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, the ultimate, obviously there's many differences between our projects, but I think <laughs> the biggest one is the role of race, Um, And when I first started working on this project, I mean, originally I envisioned it as something quite different. I wanted to look specifically at Soviet citizens, um, kind of uh, expatriate communities that were actually called in the Soviet parlance or in the Russian parlance colonies. Um, Yes. (laughs) So um, I wanted to look at those kind of Soviet communities in Czechoslovakia um, and to think about them perhaps... um, how they, you know, were there parallels to these, you know, European communities um, in the colonies, whether it was, you know, French or British or, or what have you. Um, and, and I, so, and even when I sort of switched to thinking more about these forms of social and cultural context, because I just couldn't find the archival material I wanted to um, on those expatriates, I, I still initially had this kind of framework where I really was interested in comparing, you know, Soviet in the sort of Soviet imperial role in Eastern Europe with thinking about either the British or French empire, you know, whether it was in Africa or Asia. Um, But the issue, there were so many differences um, between the Soviet kind of imperial project in Eastern Europe. Um, You know, the hierarchies are flipped in that Eastern Europe was more economically developed than the Soviet Union itself. It was more industrialized um, countries, specifically Czechoslovakia was one of the most industrialized countries um, in Eastern Europe before World War II. It had a similar GDP to Belgium. Um, And even that whole question of East and West, I mean, you know, Larry Wolf, of course, um, most famously has has written about, you know, how the whole category of Eastern Europe was a political category that actually stems from the Enlightenment, but then became um, much more um, kind of entrenched during the Cold War. Um, But Czechoslovakia had before World War II had these close relations with the West. So in so many ways, that kind of imperial European imperial framework or Western European imperial framework didn't really seem to work, but particularly when we got to the issue of race. Um, And it seems in your book that race is ultimately, it's just like this stumbling block that the French just can't kind of surmount. Um, and, And I think it's really profound that European integration succeeds, even though as you discuss it in the 1950s, it sort of looks shaky as a political project but it was starting to succeed as like a social or a cultural project, you know, and, you know, at least it exists today. Um, But in terms of trying to use those similar tactics to um, kind of reformulate their empire in Africa, it just seemed like they could not do it because of this, these racial anxieties. Um, And I think in the Soviet case, so to get to your question, I mean, 
in the East European context, race is not really an issue. Um, you know, the Soviets aren't thinking about it. Race in general in the Soviet Union is much less of a salient category than it is in Western Europe or the United States, for that matter. You know, they talk about in the Soviet Union nationality as opposed to race. And of course, the Soviet Union is very multi-ethnic. That's its own whole kind of different thing. Um, but there is, you're absolutely right that this friendship project, and I only touch upon it very briefly in the book, but it does become a kind of blueprint um, for how the Soviets try and kind of extend friendship to other parts of the world, particularly here the watershed moment is decolonization. So with decolonization, suddenly, you know, Africa and Asia are sort of ripe for Soviet influence and potentially, um, you know, new countries that are developing that might become socialist. And so the Soviets do apply basically the exact same framework to their relations with African and Asian countries, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, I, and I've been doing a lot more research on this, actually, for my current project. Even things like pen pal correspondences, setting up the exact same things between, you know, African school children and Soviet school children, showing the exact same films. I mean, a lot of it was just lack of imagination, frankly. Um, but I think it also speaks to the fact that while, of course, in daily interactions between, let's say, Soviets and Africans, race did play a role. And I think the Soviets definitely did see themselves as superior in various ways. A lot of that was sort of economic. Um, we are more developed. We are more urbanized. We are more literate, etc. But that also had a racial balance for sure. Yeah, because and the reason why I ask is that it seemed like European was actually an important category for you um, in in theorizing how uh, both Czechoslovaks think of themselves as close to Western Europe and sort of more culturally proximate to the West. And then there were like a couple of suggestions of like a sort of you know this sort of old sort of racialized anti-Soviet Asiatic, you know, I, I don't know, like there, there, there was a subcurrent of that, that like my little spidey sense was going off. And, and it made me wonder, like, are any of the Soviet delegations or tourists that are coming to Czechoslovakia from, you know, the other, the Central Asian republics, like how? I mean, they, they are. Um, yes, uh, people come from all over the Soviet Union. I mean, the majority of them do come from the Slavic republics, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, but they, but they do come from Central Asia as well. And you're right. I mean, I think you're sort of more sensitive <laughs> to looking at these kind of racial undertones, um, you know, because of your grounding in, in French colonial history. Um and, and you're absolutely right that there are various moments when, um, whether it's discussing Soviet violence, such as rape, um, that Soviet soldiers are committing at the end of World War II in the quote-unquote liberation of Czechoslovakia, or discussing the Soviet invasion in 68, Czechoslovaks will call them Asiatics. Um, you know, that is their kind of racial epithet. Um, and you're right as well that there is a, it is very important in kind of Czechoslovak history. There's these questions, where do we belong? Are we part of East or West? Um, and that idea, particularly of kind of, we are Europeans, we are Central European. This is, you know, Czech intellectuals like Kundera, et cetera, um, really kind of latch onto that idea, particularly like in the 1980s. 
um, as a kind of anti-communist, you know, rebellion against the communists. I guess what I would say, though, overall, I think in my project, and this gets back to the student issue, um, where we were talking about, you know, comparing the experiences of your African students in France versus the Czech students I write about who went to the Soviet Union. I think that whereas for your project, it's race that is that ultimate stumbling block. I think for the Soviets, it's foreignness. Um, And I think that the problems they have integrating these Czech students, and they have, I asked you about um, those sexual anxieties about sexual relations, because in the Soviet case, they actually forbid in the Stalinist period, Soviet citizens from marrying foreigners from whatever country. Wild. Which is wild. I was also shocked. But I think it's, it's xenophobia there. Um, and this kind of persistent fear of the foreign in Soviet culture, even though, you know, at the same time, they want to have these, quote unquote, friendly relations with Eastern Europe, or then, you know, with Africans or Asians, as their world kind of expands in the 1960s, they are also just perennially kind of afraid of foreign ideas, um, and particularly kind of Western um, ideas. And, you know, that's something they're never able to fully surmount. Um, you know, just as I think race in, in your project is is that stumbling block. Um, I, I did want to just ask you a little bit or shift the conversation a little bit to thinking about the latter stages of your project um, and the role that the Cold War plays, um, you know, in shaping this, kind of new transnational relationship between France and its colonies. Um, Could you talk a little bit about, it seems to me that the Cold War from the French perspective plays a kind of pernicious, like it it itself might have helped to kind of undermine um, their imperial project. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, So I think that this is another current in the literature that I was medium pushing against. not too full throttled, but uh, you know, I think that I think the Cold War is part of the answer for why this project doesn't work. Um, this, you know, Franco-African integration project, um, but it's not the whole answer. So it's something I was really struck by uh, in your book and mine is that you know the window of possibility uh, in the French case really is closed in 1947, <laughs> when all the communists are kicked out of the French government. Uh, and and that's, you know, when people typically date the onset of the Cold War in France, um, because the communists vote. I mean, it, it's also about empire. The communists uh, refuse to vote funds for the war in Indochina. <laughs> and uh, that is the collapse of, of, you know, the system of tripartite governance between the Christian Democratic Party, the Socialist Party, and the Communist Party. Um, And so, you know, in the French colonial literature, like people acknowledge that, right, that like, you know, there is this sharp right right return after from 47 onward that like closes a lot of doors. And yet, like, they don't know how to sort of deal with that as one factor among many, or they just kind of like ignore that, like the onset of the Cold War really starts that early in France and like extend the moment. And I mean, it seemed to me that was so parallel to your, your you know, the first the 1945, 1948 chunk of your book where like, you know, it 
you're emphasizing that real, some form of real debate was possible. Uh, Czechoslovaks are really trying to appraise uh, what kind of relationship they want with the Soviet Union. It is enthusiastic, they're enthusiastic, they're open to it, but they, you know, they, they, the line that I think you keep saying is that they really want to have honest conversations about, you know, setting the parameters of this relationship, right? Um, and I think that in my case, that is exactly what the, you know, the older generation of Africans who come into the government after 45, um, you know, what they want. They're like, OK, now's the time to have a real frank conversation about colonial racism and structural inequality between the metropole and the territories. And that conversation is is shut down by their metropolitan interlocutors who really are not up to up to that. Right. Um, and I think that um, that. Part of the reason why they're not up for that conversation are these Cold War anxieties, right? Um, a, a fear not just of Soviet and communist influence, but also American influence. Um, if anything, it might be directed more towards the United States than the, the Soviet Union because France really does understand itself in the Western orbit and the U.S. is the hegemon that is going to be constricting their choices. Um, and so I do think that there's um, there's an interesting, there are so many interesting inversions between our two books, right? I mean, one is, you know, you've noted this sort of like the Czechoslovakia is more industrialized, more advanced. Um, the the cultural script is also kind of flipped for critics of sort of capitalism, consumerism, and the United States who are interested in sort of the earthy, more traditional, non-materialist values of colonial societies <laughs> and see some value in trying to like mitigate um, extreme consumerism and capitalism and the evils of the West. Um, so there's that sort of interesting inversion there. Um, but there's also this, you know, really interesting inversion with just the liberation itself um, in that, you know, it is French Africans that liberate France <laughs> from the Nazis. <laughs> um, and so the lib and, and that gets obscured later in like the sort of Gaullist myth of France was a nation of resistors. But in the immediate post-war moment, the interest in, uh, you know, Franco-African rapprochement and building some kind of society together is out of gratitude for what French Africa did for the metropole in um, both providing a home base during the occupation and the Vichy regime for the Gaullist movement in Central Africa, and then also as, as part of the liberation force. Um, and I think that, you know, as we move into the latter st stages of my story, in the same way that you were kind of talking about that, that is so far removed from the way that folks are thinking about uh, sort of the global place of France and its African empire in an increasingly uh, violent context of decolonization and Cold War conflicts, right? But so, I mean, it's a very kind of Westad kind of argument or Matthew Connolly that like, I'm trying to really, you know, keep the sort of colonial imperial narrative front of mind without completely ignoring <laughs> the Cold War story, even though for a lot of Europeanists, like it's hard to, to let the Cold War sort of to shrink the Cold War and let it take up less space. So I'd be curious what you thought of the way I deal with it. 
Well, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it seemed to me that you were saying on the one hand, the Cold War kind of forced the French, you know, to try and reform the empire um, in the sense that there was kind of more pressure, you know, from the Soviets, but also I take your point from that the U.S. was probably more important here, um, that those critiques of empire, you know, forced them, particularly in education policy, to try and finally make these some reforms and kind of, you know, expand educational opportunities. But at the same time, it seemed to also make French officials, suddenly there was a new reason to be kind of suspicious of their colonial subjects, um, right? And these, whether it's these students, um, you know, that are coming to France, um, worrying about, you know, potential communist sympathies, or the fact that these students can be courted now by um, not just the Soviet Union, but the other Eastern Bloc countries, like you, you gave the example of a student who had wanted to study German, Um, You know, and he came to France and he faced all these obstacles in studying German because the French had very specific ideas about sort of like what colonial students should study and what was appropriate for them, which were very different from what was appropriate from like any European student who came to France. Um, But this particular student ultimately ended up going to the GDR, you know, to East Germany um, to pursue his studies. Uh, so it's just the intercession of a Czech, yeah. <laughs> a Czech communist youth leader, right. Yerzy Pelikan, who is <laughs> an important figure in the Prague Spring. So yes, that was fascinating to see to see him in both projects. Um, but I mean, I think for someone like that student, if I could just say, like, I mean, the his initial experience of racism in France was also relativized by his experience of racism in the GDR, because the expectation had had really elevated for a, you know, non-racist, anti-imperialist society in the context of the Eastern Bloc. And that, of course, was not what you know, African students found in the GDR and certainly not in the USSR later. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, like there are, you know, murders and violent attacks. I mean, it is a really different kind of visceral violent uh, or racist violence that they're experiencing versus in France and the kind of, you know, microaggressions and structural inequality and what have you. So those are different contexts. Um, But Sorry, I interrupted you. And now I've kind of lost my train of thought. (laughs) That's okay. And I I was thinking about how, um, I mean, when I was writing my chapter on students, there's such a large body of literature now that examines Soviet um, projects to educate students from Africa and Asia, you know, in the 1960s, whether it's People's Friendship University that was founded in Moscow expressly for that purpose. By the end of the 1960s, most major Soviet universities have programs you know, for students from, quote unquote, the developing countries, as the Soviets term is. Um, And and one of the things I was sort of interested in doing in the student chapter was thinking about, again, race is something that doesn't really play a role in those initial East European exchanges to the Soviet Union in the Stalinist period. Um, But a lot of the discrimination that those African and Asian students would experience in the 1960s, East European students also experienced. Like there wasn't the racial violence element, but xenophobia, I think, was so key here. And those anxieties even about sexual relations with Soviet women, you know, we see them about the East European students, even though there's no racial differences, right? Um, And even the way of organizing those students um, into these national groups, the Zimlachistva, 
um, these national communities that could then easily lead to accusations that the students themselves were segregating themselves or that they were engaged in some sort of nationalist behavior. Um, you know, that form of organizing was uh, initiated actually by East European students for practical reasons in the Soviet Union in the late 1940s, but then it's kept up, you know, and pertains also to the African or Asian students who study there in the 60s. So I just thought that that was interesting. I wonder, then, did um, when Czechoslovak or other East Europeans went to these international festivals, were they sort of surveyed in the same way that, um, you know, non-European students were? Because that was that's one of the, in that last chapter of my book, right? Like I'm talking about sort of this, more expansive world of, uh, you know, international youth mobilizations, both with, you know, the sort of communist family of youth and student organizations and the American back corollaries, right? Like that just opened up this whole other world of, um, or another stage for them, uh, another platform. And I wonder if there's a similar dynamic in the sort of like international festivals beyond and maybe you can just say a little bit more about like how you came to um, think about the sort of Soviet Czechoslovak by binational relationship within like the wider Eastern Bloc. Um, I mean, you talk about it in the book a little bit, but maybe more. Yeah, I mean, so I didn't really look at festivals per se. Um, I would say in general surveillance. Uh, you know, it's kind of a surveillance is a hard question to answer from for methodological reasons, um, because the KGB archives are totally closed. So, you know, you can't get access to that. It's hard to really know who's being surveilled um, exactly. But I, my sense is that in general, like if it was on tourist trips, for example, um, the Soviets are much more focused on people going to the West. Uh, you know, if they're sending tourist groups to the West, they will include KGB agents. If they're sending them to Eastern Europe, they will include Communist Party members who are writing reports, but they don't necessarily have like KGB agents on those trips. So it's like a different level. Their suspicion, like I said, xenophobia is such a central part of kind of the Soviet history. Um, but it's not at the same level for those relations with Eastern Europe particularly when we get to the post-Stalinist period, as it is, you know, with the West. Um, in general, um, I think, you know, I argue in the book that the forms of friendship that I'm talking about, this friendship project is kind of the same for all of the Soviet Union's relations with each of its East European satellites. And as, as we talked about earlier, it also then becomes the blueprint for establishing some form of friendship with, um, you know, politically sort of, um, you know, countries in Africa who may be socialist with various, um, to varying degrees in the 1960s um, and in Asia as well. Um, so that form of friendship is kind of the same across the board, but the way it plays out is very different in each country. And um, in Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, you know, as I discussed in the book, kind of offered the best case um, for a successful friendship, uh, both because of the story of the liberation, um, pan-Slavism, a history of pan-Slavism, um, and kind of genuine support in Czechoslovakia because of their experience with the Nazi occupation um, for both socialism and a close alliance with the Soviet Union 
you know, at the end of World War II. Um, yeah. And I thought that the way that, oh, good. No, go ahead. I thought that the way that you frame the liberation piece and just how profoundly post-war your story is, like how, <laughs> how that is not just like a chrono- chronological marker, but like a, a real important interpretive frame for you was really interesting. And it just, you know, the specific, the special case of, um, you know, the Soviet liberation of Czechoslovakia, it, it just raised these questions for me about political sincerity or insincerity um, and the way in which you're sort of reading with and against sort of the official rhetoric um, that the Friendship Project entails. I think that I initially thought of titling my book something with political insincerity and, you know, some somebody suggested that, you know, isn't all politics insincere? <laughs> and and I'm not sure I agree with that, um, even though I did issue um, the the term, uh, because, you know, it's it's just really interesting how much um, how much you read into these different moments of sincerity. You know, I think that your story moves through. Uh, all of these different iterations and reformulations of the friendship project through the decades as, you know, events uh, and other factors create change. And yet there, there seems to be uh, a, a through line of sincerity that you trace through pretty much each of those stages. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, I really wanted to make, to kind of push back. I think the book is pushing back against a lot of the literature that, you know, and, and you kind of um, summarized it earlier on in the conversation, but that kind of sees this rhetoric of friendship as just sort of window dressing for imperialism or sugarcoating for it. And and that is absolutely part of it. And I, I absolutely, you know, want to um, make clear that this was a hierarchical project and the Soviet Union was a superpower and it sent its tanks, you know, into Czechoslovakia in 68 and, you know, crushed the Prague Spring. And, you know, we, it did the same in Hungary and, 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 you know, so it is, it absolutely is in many ways, this, this oppressive imperialist power, but I also wanted to take seriously how both sides um, did have various reasons for engaging with one another, particularly in the sphere of everyday life, um, and how I think people did take seriously this idea of friendship, both because of the specifics of the Soviet liberation of Czechoslovakia, which really had a profound effect throughout the Cold War period, but also because for ideological reasons, um, that the idea, I mean, we're talking about committed communists in both countries, even though the idea of communism and what it means changes over time. Um, But, you know, there is this idea that there might be a different type of socialist internationalist relations that will be distinguished from Western, you know, relations based on either imperialism or realpolitik, um, you know, that will be kind of more egalitarian. Um, and that is, I think, something that never entirely goes away. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an important part of Marxism, right? That workers of the world unite and that eschewing of kind of national boundaries um, and idea of solidarity, you know, that might be more class-based. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's something that I did want to kind of emphasize and take seriously. Um, and... I think, um, 
you know, one question I had for you, Emily, and it relates to, you know, the question you were asking me, how does this uh, project between the friendship project between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia maybe compare with other versions of the friendship project? For you, I was curious, you don't touch on this at all in the book, but is there anything equivalent for, um, let's say, France's relations with people from Indochina um, or its, you know, its Asian colonies? Um, Or is this very specifically a kind of Franco-African project that you're writing about? Yeah, I mean, I I thought about this in the way that you framed... um, you know, the sort of Czechoslovak case as both, you know, the friendship project is sort of similar throughout the Eastern Bloc, and yet there's something specific (laughs) about Czechoslovakia in this relationship. And I think I would argue the same. I mean, maybe more specific in my case, you know, I do think that actually (laughs) that both the history of how colonization happened, the sequence of it, and then also the very particular racialized understandings of Africans, um, of Black Africans, is part of what seems to make them more available (laughs) than, um, say, Algerians, who are considered um, more profoundly and politically Muslim, which is seen as, you know, a, a wedge, between, uh, you know, these kinds of projects, whereas, you know, and I talk about this in the book a lot, there's like a racialized understanding of what the French call Islam Noir or Black Islam, uh, where they they conceptualize, you know, African Muslims as, as not really Muslim <laughs> and still kind of gettable. <laughs> and so they're, they're um, targeted in a different way. I mean, from the end of World War II, um, for the first decade, I mean, France is just at war in Indochina. Um, there is not the possibility for, uh, you know, investment and promotion of educational exchanges and tourism and all of these things. And when that war ends, uh, the war in Algeria begins in 54, right? So um, that's one of the reasons why I didn't focus on those uh, geographic contexts. And I don't talk about the Caribbean because the Caribbean becomes... Um, formerly part of the French Republic in 1946 uh, through a process called departmentalization where Martinique and um, Guadeloupe and French Guiana and the South American continent and Réunion in the Indian Ocean basically are become states, like they achieve statehood, the equivalent of Hawaii to, um, you know, in the French context, whereas New Caledonia, which is, uh, and French Polynesia, Um, you know, have more of that, like, Puerto Rico status, (laughs) like a liminal status. Um, But I know that we're running out of time, and I still have so many more questions for you. But I guess I would just say, um, to try and and wrap it up, that I do think that the place of Africa, not just in the French, but the European imaginary, makes it, opens it up for this kind of project, because there is a history of European integrationists going back to the 1920s, imagining European cooperation through a collective development project in Africa. Um, And that actually goes all the way back to Victor Hugo in the uh, 19th century. So I I think there's an interesting way in which um, there's a special relationship between France and Africa, which I, which I analogize to the special relationship in the, in the Czechoslovak Soviet case. Yeah. And, and I would just say, you know, maybe to wrap up that I think another 
really interesting parallel in our projects is that they both end rather suddenly, right? That they they both sort of collapse. Um, and in your project, it's uh, you know the Declaration of Independence of um, you know France's African colonies, which mostly happens in 1960, if I'm correct. Um, you know, and in the Soviet case, of course, it's the well in Czechoslovakia, it's the Velvet Revolution of 1989. But 1989, we can just you know let that stand the year in and of itself. Um, and I think it's just really interesting how both of these projects just kind of overnight become kind of retrograde. It seems to me. Um, and uh, so I don't know if you have any final words you want to say about what role you think that abruptness plays um, in your story? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that has to be explained that has not yet been explained in the existing literature is why does it all collapse within the span of two years? Um, and I think that, you know, this this broader story that is both, you know, a high politics, you know, convergence of competing transnational uh, political projects and also the everyday uh, sort of social and cultural reconstruction um, and the way that actually plays out is part of the answer. And my sense was that was similar to what you were arguing, that the Friendship Project, you have a great line towards the end, that it is both constructing uh, the empire of friends, it is maintaining it, and it is ultimately contributing to its dissolution, right? Right. And I think we both argued similarly that both of our projects to a certain extent were successful in that they brought these two, you know, communities together. Um, but it was through those closer contacts, you know, in your case, talking about, you know, Africans experience in France and, you know, the racism they experienced and how that um, was so, you know, clashed with the rhetoric that they had been told about what their role in this new kind of French empire would be. Um, that that really led to this disillusionment that helped to, to fuel decolonization. Um, you know, and I think in my case, again, that I would argue that that friendship project brought Soviet and Czechoslovak citizens together through these various forms of cultural and educational exchanges. But the more they got to know each other, the more they kind of realized our cultures are different and also our politics are different. Our views of socialism have really diverged. Um, and that clashed with the overarching rhetoric about socialist internationalism, which was all based on this kind of unifying idea of, of politics, right? Well, on behalf of everyone at Kritika, I want to thank Rachel Applebaum and Emily Marker for their conversation today. Uh, you can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation, which will be between Nicole Eaton and Max Bergholtz. Uh, thank you very much. 